Hello and welcome to the Professional Insight <clears throat> Podcast, Episode 5. Uh, really appreciate everyone listening. My name is Brandon Curry. I'm Jeff Collins. Josh Bond is just uh, unavailable at the moment. And myself, Trevor Technical. Lindy. Technical difficulties. Uh, technical difficulties. Um, listen, uh, first and foremost, thank you to our uh, sponsors, uh, Brand Boulevard, um, for all of your branding needs um our guest today uh i'm I'm pretty pumped about it i'm pretty pumped uh did you guys end up uh i know you guys follow as well and he just uh our guest today just released one of his most recent um uh youtube videos uh energy you can geek out Mm -hmm. right now eh? oh god you have no idea i'm totally geeking out like you know borderline (laughs) man crush borderline man crush why not um, but no, this, uh, I am, I have, I've been a huge follower of, of Preet's, um, YouTube channel. Uh, I'll let him, uh, he's a couple minutes away to, to, to joining us. He's, he's in back to backs today, but, uh, the fact that we managed to get him, uh, what this, that's why we're doing a, um, Ooh, look at that side uh, by side by side. Oh, I know that's too. crazy that's good job there, rookie. I like that. That's yeah. good. Rook. Um, but yeah, uh, th- that's why we're recording and going live on a Wednesday because, um, it just so happens that, yeah, that, 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 that was the only he's available, thing that right? yeah, he's available. Well, and he's, he's, he's doing his, I'll let him also go into more detail, but he's doing his doctorate. He's going to be doing that in the United Kingdom. He's moving there. Like, this is crazy. So, uh, he's got a great story. Um, but in the meantime, uh, Trev, yes, the Fed. Uh, yeah, what are we at? Had anything released yet on the Fed? Uh, as we're going live today, it's uh, Wednesday, June the fifteenth. Uh, we're going to be hike number I don't know how many for the. Well, this will um, be the U.S. The U.S. Right when we say the Fed, correct. for anybody listening or watching. In all honesty, I have been just swamped business wise uh, today. Have not even had a chance to pay attention to the news on it at all uh i don't see anything yet coming up on the news feed here in uh in apple news so but they were talking about going up three quarters of a point 75 basis points today and uh you know the reality is if they do there's a high likelihood that we're going to follow suit and do something similar at the uh the next meeting that which is scheduled for july so pretty it's it looks like they basically inflated the prices of the houses during COVID to distract us from the bad economy, eh? And now they're right. it pretty hardcore. No, I, I, and and, and it's kind of crazy because uh, I mean, uh, Collins, what are you hearing on the street right now? I mean, you just uh, posted some good listings uh, uh, for anyone that's looking to move down to Niagara. I strongly suggest you follow Collins on his Book of Faces page. Um, but, uh, you, you just listed a couple properties. I mean, Hey, listen, the good realtors, uh, we, we've been saying this before, this is going to be the test of the great realtors and the average realtors, right? Well, cream and, always rises to the top, no matter what you do. Right. But yeah, I listed yep. two houses today. They're both flippable properties. Right. But it's difficult in a market like this. So it's some, I, as Trevor knows, I've worked with them for a long time. Um, I aim for houses that are shitholes. I like the shitholes. I like to fix them up. And then it's a way to make some money off of it, uh, which I really like. Um, and I'm not saying these are that, but these are ones that if you've got a dated house versus one that 
clearly needs to be fixed up. And both these houses I've listed are that, but both could make you money. And both are actually better suited as if you fix it up yourself on a Purchase Plus program, which me and Trevor have done tons of times. Uh, you could make some good money even on a market where it's going down a little bit. And one's a, a 10-acre property. It's 1,500 square feet, a double-car garage. And the other one's a uh, first-time buyer property at 399 which is hard to find. But that one needs 50 grand in it, 40 to 50 grand, which we've done before. Actually, we did it with a client last year, me and Trevor. And then uh, the other one, you're probably looking at 100, 150 grand. But I've already got tons of people writing about it because I got a lot of builders on my my site. And they all want that forever home that's 10 acres of a wooded you know, wonderland. So those are interesting. So oh, just are you Bondo? <laughs> Sorry, boys. That's the Harry Potter cool. room is back. I love it. I'm going there. I'm going uh, there. So Collins, what are, are you hearing? Like, I mean, Trevor and I, this is what we, this is the kind of our world that we live in every day. We hear about it every day. You being the realtor, are you like, what are you seeing? Like, what are, what's the comments? Are, are oh, people- I'm seeing price drop, price drop. It's still selling and all that, but uh, people who are trying to maintain that price point from January, February, it's, it's unrealistic. It's, to me, it looks like it's skyrocketing to not pre-pandemic prices, but a year ago prices right now. Now, if you hit those prices, you'll sell them, but like it's attacking every price range. You're, you're talking... First time buyer, the problem, the first time buyer price range, we were competing forever with people who want to um, do a flip or, or investors like that. And they had such low interest rates, which me and Bond have talked about before, that they had the borrowing, borrowing power, uh, you know, using the equity of their own home, they could buy whatever. And then the first time buyers can't get it. Now, with the interest rates climbing pretty fast, um, those people aren't quite there anymore. So it's just it's just pushing down all the house prices. The houses I found that were going 800000 before now are low sevens. And, you know, like 1.5s, like, like I'm here and GTA is dropping pretty quick and that kind of affects it down here. But there's still buyers out there that are are jumping on some prices and not sitting back. But the, the more astute buyer is going to kind of pause for the cause and see if there's better deals out there. So it's, right. it's a different market. It's just a, I prefer this market, but the transition from from a seller's market to a balanced market to potentially a buyer's market coming very soon is a steep, quick transition. And there's a lot of unhappy sellers out there that may have bought already and missed the boat on their price point or are going to have to be more realistic on what they thought. You know, it's just, there was a lot of money that was being made there and it's not quite there right now. So it's a quickly changing market. Yeah, but how long do you think it's going to stick around, Jeff? That's the other question, right? Well, I don't know because the interest rates continue to go up, right? And every time they do that, there's a there's a, an adjustment period. And there's like Trevor was just saying before you got on, it looks like there's another one coming shortly. So July, eh? How does that affect it? Right? Yeah. It, it affects the investors a lot out there uh, because they have to deal with higher prices. So, for example, for me building, we borrow a lot of private money. We get a lot of private money at 8%, which, you know, for us isn't bad. But if those people using the equity in their buildings are going to be paying a higher interest rate, they're not going to be getting at two and a half. They'll be getting at four, four and a half. They're not going to be loaning to us at eight anymore. It'll be 10 or 12. So I've already had, like, I get a lot of people talk to me about opportunities of stuff that's available. And I've had more than ever before, like people reaching out with land and, and uh, townhouse developments and you know stuff like that and saying, are you interested? I've got a several lot where nobody would even think of offering out of, off the market right now. They just, you know, sell it, put it on the market, and make quick bucks. That's they're they're coming everywhere now. I love it because there's opportunities out there. But that mindset, you have to make that flip in your head that hey, our house isn't going to be 
you know, carte blanche price, it's your, your quality is going to happen now. So if you've got a house that, that you want to sell and you do good work to it, it'll do it. But then people are going to say, well, is there a finishable basement on there? If there's not, that's not as appealing, right? Is, is there a garage on it? Is there not? Is there a driveway that looks like it needs to be dug up and redone? You know, all these things are going to become more picky because before, like you could have a foot of water in the basement and people would love it and overbid on it. Yeah. 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 Now, now if you walk in the house and there's a fart smell in the house, they're like, okay, let's get out of here. You know, I want 50 grand off it. You know, it's, I don't know if I'd buy a house that smelled like a fart on any given day, but I would hundred percent put an ozone machine in there and get rid of that fart (laughs) smell. You know, it's a fart. That's the worst thing you'd be like, Joe, you know, here's a good joke that you hear a lot of times. If you're selling a house, huge tip. Don't take a big dump in your toilet and walk out just before the showing. And it, you have, you've had people do that. Oh my, oh, not my people. I hope not. Like I don't, I'm not there, but I've had it where I walk into and it, it, like it's still steaming on the toilet when I walk in there and you can smell it and you're like, Oh my, like, what, like spray something like, because yeah. what I tell people all the time when you're looking through houses, one of the big factors is, you know, we got to go see it. We got to go see it. We got to go see it. Got to go see it. And if you're uh, uh, doing your right job as a real estate agent, you've got to go through with your people because you're representing, you got their best interests in mind. So you got to put your eyes on. I always tell people, I got to get my eyes on it. So when what you have people go through. Agents, Jordan? Yeah, I would do that, Jeff. Would take a dump in a toilet before the no house gets shown? <laughs> <laughs> I hope none. I hope zero percent. I'm sure there's uh, always like, takes make sure that they take the time to take the clients. To well, get you, you, with, have, with the you have to be with an agent, right? See, the difference is open houses now. People can go through an open house and say, "I want to put an offer," mm-hmm. right? And and it, it does happen, like a, like a very small amount, you know. Like agents are like anyone in our business is super busy and all that. And I like to have Sundays off, as you guys know. I do lose business because I take Sundays off, but I prioritize my family at least once a week, and Sunday's the best day. They have no school. You know, I can have some fun with friends maybe Saturday night, and Sunday just doesn't end. And I have lost a deal or two a year over the course of my career, especially when I switched them. And it is what it is. So I'm prioritizing my family and telling them every Sunday, no matter what, it's what we do, right? Good so there's yep. a different rule for all that stuff. But there, there's agents now that can't make it there on open house because they're doing their own open houses. So people will go through. They love to go through open houses. You know, it's, it's a way to go fishing as an agent, right? You go to find buyers and stuff like yep. that. I do sell houses on an open house without a doubt. Like I meet a lot of clients in open houses. A lot of them go nowhere. But that's that's the sales game, right? You're playing the percentages. The more opportunities you got, the better chance you got to convert. So now, if you convert 10%, you're still making money off it, right? But you should go through. And I've had it where agents try to buy my properties. These are agents from out of town. I'm not going to say where it is because out of due respect to one of our past guests. Um, but from out of town, and they're like, you know what? Love the house. going to throw an offer. Haven't seen it. I said, no, I'm not taking it. You want to represent your client, you go through the house. You go right. through the house, we can we can do business. If not, I don't want to hear about this. And as a lawyer, you you know that before. Yeah. On the close, um, oh, yeah, we didn't know that was there. Well, you didn't go through it. Like, I don't understand how an agent would end Believe me, very small percentage of agents okay. would do this, okay? I'm not okay. trying to slander this industry Yeah, that's why all. I asked. That's why you I know? asked how many, you know, would do it. But it, it, you you hear every scenario, you know? Yep. Like, I, I had one where I sold recently, and I won't say the address or nothing like that, but this was an agent from out of town, wanted no matter what. I had tenants in it. Tenants, you need 24 hours notice. They need to be informed before you can go through. But he lived in the basement. So he said, I'm going to put an offer in full price. I said, no, I'm not going to take it. I don't care. I'm not going to get stuck in a problem later on where you say, I didn't know about it. You know, do your job and drive down here and show the house to your clients. 
If you're fine with it, I'm fine. He said, okay, if I can go tonight, I'll do it. I said, well, you can go in the bottom part of the, of the house. So the basement was like an in-law suite where the owner lived there and he rented out the upstairs. And then he said he had enough of the pictures upstairs. He didn't care. He was going to gut the upstairs. So he didn't care. He liked the location, liked the price point. Took it. Took it. Closed. I got a bigger deposit on it, which is a lawyer, you know, big deposit, big deposit, big deposit. You want to yep, protect your client. Scary. We knew about that. Hey, Collins, we got to go. Okay. Collins. Uh, so our our guest 100%. is here. Uh <clears throat> Preet Banerjee, how's it going? It's going. How are you guys? <laughs> Doing good. great. Thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, so thanks for so much for joining the podcast. We really appreciate it. So um, we'll uh, do a quick intro of ourselves and what we do, um, and then uh, you can do our. Uh, you can go into details on your your history and and uh, the background and what have you. Uh, so obviously. Uh, Brandon Curry, uh, certified financial planner, chartered life underwriter, uh, partner at CR Smith Financial. Future uh, mayor. <laughs> not even close. Wanna, do not want the political game at all. Uh, Trev? I'm uh, mortgage broker, neighborhood Dominion Lending Centers. Collins? Podcast superstar. Oh, just joking. I'm a, I'm a realtor, realtor and a builder and uh, dabbling in developing right now. And Bondo? I'm a husband, a father, and a lawyer at Flat Bacario. And a hell of a golf player. <laughs> <laughs> and I can hit a decent ball, but not, not anywhere close to the green, no. <laughs> That's cement hands. <laughs> so, uh, Preet, your, um, your background. Sure. How much, or, how short, how concise do you want me to be? Because it's, it zigs and zags like crazy. Oh, just go. Yeah. I mean, like the yep. fact that you, even, you went to school as an, you, you, you went, yeah, you went to school for to be an F1 driver, which is crazy. Go well, ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Let me go one step before that. So, okay. I want to hear the academics on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, initially, I uh, went to school. My undergraduate degree was in um, neuroscience at U of T. And the day after my last exam, uh, I started my next schooling adventure, which was at the Bridgestone Firestone Racing Academy, um, which was the goal was to try and become a professional race car driver. Little did I know at the time that I started too late and I ended up running out of money and talent. So obviously that career ended relatively quickly. Um, so it was that after after that school that I realized that it wasn't going to be in the cards for me to become a professional race car driver. So I, I stayed at the school for two more years working there. Um, and I worked in the in the office. And that school, that racing school, had three main lines of revenue. One was people who wanted to become, you know, the next Michael Schumacher. Um, then there was uh, individuals uh, who just wanted to give it a shot, see what it was like to, to drive a race car. And then we also had corporate entertainment, which was really the main revenue of the school was corporate entertainment. So you could take 144, I think, people for a scramble style golf tournament, or for the same price, you can take 12 VIPs to the racing school. It is pretty expensive to drive those cars. But by virtue of that, a lot of the corporate clients were Bay Street firms. And so I got to know a couple of people on Bay Street. One guy took me aside one day and he said, you know, when you're done wasting your time, I want you to come work for me. Uh, I think you do really well in my world. And his original plan was for uh, me to, you know, take the CFA and use my neuroscience background to become a biotech stock analyst. And um, that was the initial plan. And then about 
three months after he told me that he retired. And so I didn't have a <laughs> sort of a place to, what? to seriously. Yeah. Young guy too. Um, and he must've done well then. Yeah. He was one of the original investors in, I think Netscape navigator. If you can remember that. Oh yeah. I remember Netscape. Wow. Yeah, yeah. The old, yeah, uh, he, the old night house, right? Yeah. He was a pretty hot shot tech analyst and he timed his exit perfectly. <laughs> so, um, in any case, I didn't have a spot to sort of neatly tuck into. So I took a different path and ended up becoming an advisor, um, uh, first mutual funds. Then I was a stockbroker, and, uh, I'm, I'm going quickly now, but, um, mm -hmm. And then I spent some time as a wholesaler um, selling um, uh, index funds, boutique index funds to advisors. And then around the same time, I was driving to work one day and my, my girlfriend at the time heard an ad on the radio for the women's network who was looking for on-air talent. And they were holding this competition for people to just sort of apply. And I thought she was talking, she was telling me the story because she was going to apply. And uh, I was like, yeah, great. Go for it. I think it'd be awesome. And she's like, no, Stu, but I think you should apply to be like the money guy for the network. And, you know, up until that point, I had no inkling, intention or desire to be on TV or anything like that. Um, but I decided, you know what, let's give it a shot. I, I never want to close a door. I don't want to be one of those people that looks back and regrets the things that you didn't do. So I said, screw it, let's do it. And so I auditioned. Um, long story short, I ended up making it to the final seven, the final seven, we were put on a reality TV show. Uh, and the goal was to try and find the ultimate W network expert. And it was this crazy reality show competition. Uh, we could talk about that if you want, but I ended up winning yeah, it. Tell us a little bit about it, Preet. I'm sure. It was yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> the, uh, the gist of it was there were seven different lifestyle experts and seven different disciplines. So there was like a hairstylist, there was a chef, there's an interior decorator, a fitness person, and and what have you. I think there's a psychologist as well. And so we had all these different tasks that we had to perform, which were designed to see, well, how how good could they potentially be as a, as a TV host? And so these tasks were things that they wouldn't tell us what they were ahead of time. And so sometimes you just have these big studio doors and they said, all right, so once you pass through those doors, red light is on, everything's being taped, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's go you're time. On. And, and yeah. we'll tell you what you're going to do after you enter those doors. <laughs> so <laughs> I remember one of them was uh, you go in and you get to this like podium, there's a little, table there and on this table was this weird metal contraption you had no idea looking at it what it was for and they said okay tell us some lesson from your discipline in three minutes while using this to open a can because this is the first can opener that was ever invented and if you looked at this thing you had no idea how to use it so <laughs> i just ended up sort of like stabbing the can while i'm trying to talk about i don't know compounding returns or something like that in any case i ended up missing the can and i sliced my hand open i ended up going to the to the oh, hospital <laughs> oh my god so that was one task another one which was funny well was, you left said, an impression Preet. Uh, totally i think that actually did make an impact <laughs> maybe they just felt sorry for me and they said we don't want this guy to sue us so you know That's give them give them the prize um another task was uh, you go into this room, there's a teleprompter, and they said, just read what's on the teleprompter. You're like, okay, well, that sounds relatively easy. But the person who was operating the teleprompter was given instructions to speed up the teleprompter to a point where you could not catch up. 
um, you had to introduce this guest onto this make-believe program and their last name had like 30 letters and no vowels. And so they were just doing things to see how fast you could react on your feet. Um, and the big, I think the big culminating event was this, uh, what they called a divorce party. And um, they said, listen, all seven of you are going to spend three days with this couple who are planning their divorce party. So it's amicable. Um, they've had a great relationship, but they've just figured out that, you know, the relationship isn't working. So they're going to throw a divorce party. So we need, you know, the interior decorator to design the party. We need the psychotherapist, you know, do yeah. some couples counseling. You got to talk about, you know, them getting divorced and all this stuff. And unbeknownst to us, the two people that they had hired were actors. And we thought it was real, right? And it was emotional. A couple of people who were competing were like crying during like the oh. final sort of scene. And then right at the end, they said, well, thank you for helping us manage our divorce. And by the way, we're just actors. We're totally madly in love. Everything's fine. And you should have seen the, the cast almost rioted. It was, it was brutal. <laughs> um, long story short, um, and I think this was because I thought there was no way the money guy was going to win you know, this competition to become on air talent for a TV show for the W network. So I thought there's no chance. So I'm not even, I'm not going to get too worked up about it. And I think the fact that I wasn't nervous because I thought there was no chance that I was going to win is the reason I ended up winning because I think, I think the nerves crept into maybe some of the other competitors. Um, it was also the time of the great financial crisis. So the timing was right because the appetite for anything financial was huge at that time. So the stars kind of aligned, ended up winning the show, and the prize was a development deal for my own show. And um, for about three years, they paid me a lot of money not to be on other TV networks. So there was a joke Seriously. that I was... Yeah, there was a joke. I was the best paid host not on TV because <laughs> they're trying to figure out a show concept. So in the end, they just said, well, here's an existing show. You can just, you know, uh, become the host of that. And that was Million Dollar Neighborhood on the Oprah Winfrey Network. So I ended up hosting that for a year. Jeez. Oh, my you. God. So now you are, you, you have a very popular, which I, uh, I, I follow and I tell my clients to subscribe into, or even on the, on, you know, different things, I'll send them links and uh, of your YouTube video. You, uh, take us to what the, what's the YouTube channel called? I know you've got over 115,000 subscribers. Yeah. It's just my name, Preet Banerjee. If you want to find it, you know, um, stumble across it. Now you did what got me onto the YouTube channel initially, and I was telling you about this uh, uh, before. Was the analysis that you that you did on designations and the importance of dealing with professionals? And I, I vividly remember that one of the it was one of the reasons that I went through hell to get the CFP because I ended up writing the CFP during the pandemic. Uh, because everything got delayed. Um, and that was one of the major reasons I got the CLU as well and, and my designations there. And just, we're all, you know, we're called the Professional Insight Podcast for a reason. We, 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 we just felt that we shared a lot of information, like Trevor and I, with interest rates going up. And then that, that linked to Collins. And I obviously have clients saving for real estate. And then Bondo with all the legal expert. Um, it, it, and yet people still try to do it themselves or think that they're better. And I guess coming from someone who has done it for quite a while, how maybe some advice for people or, or some insight into 
you know, we're going to touch on crypto. We're going to touch on self-investing in the, in the ass, but let's just ease into that and the importance of dealing with professionals and, and your, your opinion on it. Sure. Yeah. So let me um, take a step back and uh, also point out that it uh, looks like the Fed raised by 75 basis points. Um, they did. Yeah. Um, just hit the wire. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let me take a step back. And one of the things I didn't mention in my intro is that I went back to school uh, to pursue a doctorate. And my research question is looking at quantifying the value of financial advice across different delivery channels. And so uh, I started blogging back in 2007 and sort of just opining on different things related to personal finance and advice. And the early days, people thought that it was kind of paradoxical. I was an advisor and I was writing things that made people think that I was anti-advisor. And I think people always try to put people into a box and try to figure out, all right, so what's their sort of worldview? And when it comes to advice, I think there are people who are very firmly in the pro-advice camp and there are people who are very anti-advice camp, especially in the when it comes to investing. And that's that one-dimensional way of looking at things never really sat well with me because I, and I think a lot of people agree, there are some people who can do a lot on their own and they're capable of doing a lot on their own. But the vast majority of people need some form of advice. And there's also two sides of the equation in terms of relationships. You have the professionals or salespeople, and there's a huge variation in quality um, in in on the advice side. And there's a huge variation in the type of client as well. Some clients are great clients. Some clients are not great clients. And so really what I wanted to do is try and take a look at how do we align people so that the consumer ends up in the best place for them. And sometimes you'll have people who can benefit greatly from professional advice. And sometimes you'll have people who benefit moderately from great advice. And sometimes you'll have people who can do pretty well on their own. And some people who will only do it on their own and also end up shooting themselves in the foot. So there's so many different sort of combinations. And you have the client's perspective and you have the advice giver's perspective. And if we sort of paint each side as homogenous, it's just not reflecting reality. Right. Now it was just interesting. So, how are you going to do that? That doctorate, you're going to you're going to be moving to the UK to do that study. What is? How are you going to quantify that? Like, how? What, what are you going to do? Are you going to look at returns and then compare that to a control study? Like, what's the methodology? I guess is what I'm getting at. So the study is actually done. I'm moving to the UK um, because my partner, uh, now fiance, um, is. Congrats. Thank you. Um, Congrats. Her life is there and has been for a long time. <laughs> and um, so I'm, I'm only moving there because her career, I think, is more important than mine right now. And I'm also much more flexible. I've been working from home for like 10 years. So, um, <laughs> so the study's done. This is like year six of, of the study uh, of the research. And, and so I can tell you exactly what the design was to try and answer that question. So first, um, it's, it's, it's a moving goalpost situation in terms of what is actually being provided. So, you know, if you go back 60 years, uh, investment advice was really just transactions. People tell you what stocks to buy or sell. May 1st, 1975 
is known as May Day in the industry. So, so this is a pretty auspicious day, uh, May 1st, 1975. This is when the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, deregulated stock trading mm -hmm. commissions. So up until that time, it didn't matter who you went to uh, or how big your trade was. Trading commissions were fixed. Right? It was a completely regulated industry, which is kind of ironic, considering it's the U.S., the hotbed of capitalism, the most capitalistic industry, you know, Wall Street was completely regulated. So May 1st, 1975, that all changed. And people thought, you know, this is going to be the end of advice. And uh, it spawned the growth of discount brokerages, allowing people to either get big discounts on their trading commissions or potentially do it all themselves over the phone. And the industry responded. So they they responded by not just providing transactional advice. They switched to portfolio management and saying, well, how do these different components of your portfolio work together? And how do we think about that more holistically? And then as portfolio management has become more commoditized now, uh, we see, you know, think about the advent of portfolio funds, all-in-one ETF solutions, robo-advisors, index, whatever it is, it's now a margin compression game on portfolios and spending a lot of time trying to build a better investment mousetrap is not the greatest use of time for most professionals because it is completely, completely commoditized at this point. And so the value proposition of advisors has shifted away from portfolio centricity towards planning centricity and financial wellness. And so part of my research is trying to make sure that the gauge for the value of financial advice reflects contemporary measures, which is taking a look at how contemporary financial advisors, the good ones, are providing advice. And they're doing it on a holistic basis, which means not just looking at the portfolio, still a consideration, but also looking at things like their life insurance coverage, their disability insurance coverage. Do they have an emergency fund? What's their, you know, their debt servicing ratio? How do they manage their credit overall? What about education savings, um, estate planning, wills, powers of attorney, and so on and so forth? So there's multiple facets of wealth. But here's where it gets really tricky. So um, as a conceptual sort of model, here's how you can think about it. Each of these factors of wealth have varying levels of importance to people depending on where they are in their wealth journey. So let me give you an example, a very simple one, disability insurance. If most people probably know that their single biggest asset when they're young, especially, is their ability to earn an income for the rest of their life. That's worth millions and millions of dollars. And if everything goes according to plan and you're able to earn that income over time, you slowly convert that into assets. Some of it is spent and so on. But when you're young, that is your single biggest assets, your human capital, your future as of yet unearned income. And so if you don't protect that with disability insurance and you become disabled and unable to earn an income, any plans you have go out the window. You are now guaranteed to be broke or living off the charity of others if you become you know, totally disabled. And so having disability insurance is really important if you're young. So if you're 25 years old and you don't have you know, adequate disability coverage, either through work or privately, that's a big deal uh, because your, your life can get completely derailed and there's no coming back from it. If you're 64 and everything else is in order, you've been saving enough, um, you know, your taxes managed appropriately, maybe your house is mostly paid off at this point. If you become disabled at 64 one year before you were going to retire, it's not really a big financial deal. Emotionally and physically, of course, it's awful, but it's not really a big deal to your financial plan. You're very close to being retired anyways. You've built up your assets. You're effectively self-insured at this point. 
So the importance of whether or not you have disability insurance, as an example, is really important when you're younger with most of your income to be earned in the future. And it's not super important when you're 64, and it's probably unimportant when you're retired, assuming you're retiring and living the lifestyle that you want. So what that tells you is that that one factor, the importance of that factor in your overall, call it score, um, varies in its importance. And other factors of wealth also vary in their importance, depending on different things. So, for example, the cost on your portfolio to manage your portfolio. It's not related. It's not sensitive to your age. There might be a correlation because people tend to amass wealth over time. But if you inherited $10 million at 25, your portfolio costs are important. But let's say you only start investing at 64 and you start investing, I don't know, 50 bucks a month. Even if you had like a 3%, 4% MER portfolio, it's what, like, I don't know, 15, 20 bucks in fees in that one year. So it's not really that big of a, it's not ideal, but it's not really that big of an impact in your, in your financial potential. So for every factor of wealth, life insurance coverage, disability, emergency fund, all that stuff, you have to figure out what are those factors sensitive to so that you can figure out, well, how important is it for this person, depending on where they are in their journey. So if you could take all those factors and all those sensitivity loadings and then come up with this one normalized number, you could, in theory, go to anybody and say, on a score of zero to 100, based on people like you, in the same spot in their financial journey, you've got a score of 90, 70, 30, whatever it is. You can tell how well you're doing based on where you are, which means it's possible that someone who doesn't have a lot of money, but they're 20 and they're saving 10% of their income and everything else is they're doing what they can at that age, they might have a really high score. It might take a while for that to turn into wealth down the road, but they're doing everything that they should be doing to get there. And it's possible that you have someone who's 60 who hasn't done a lot of those things and their score could be very low, even though they might have, you know, maybe a sizable TFSA, but everything else is not you know, sort of lined up. So in any case, what it means is, you know, you could in theory give everyone this, this normalized score out of 100, which tells you how well they're doing at that point in their financial journey compared to other people like them. And then you've probably seen a lot of studies that say, you know, people with financial advisors have more money. Um, and mm -hmm. I don't think anyone disputes that, but a lot of those early studies were purely correlation. And correlation does not mean causation. So what I mean by that is... We know because of the way the industry was set up that you don't go after people unless they have money, right? So uh, there's a selection bias, unless and there's you want also a small paycheck, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And 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 the flip side of it, you know, if you're a consumer and you don't have a lot of money, you're maybe not really seeking that much financial advice. So there's a selection bias, and the real question is who is responsible for people accumulating more money? And so if you could, um, you know. Ideally, you'd, I would want to create something called a diff and diff study, a difference in differences to try and tease out causality. So what a diff and diff study is, is you want to see how does that number, that sort of uh, normalized number out of 100, call it, how does that number differ over time based on the different type of advice that they get? So for example, if you could take everyone who's got a score of, say, 50, and after 10 years, measure how does that score change depending on if they go to a full service advisor, if they go to maybe just a mutual fund sales rep versus a robo advisor versus doing it themselves. And so uh, to cut to the chase, 
you know, let's just compare two channels. Let's say you have a really good financial advisor who's holistic and planning centric versus let's say a, a robo-advisor and we'll call it robo-advisor 1.0. So of all those different factors of wealth, maybe a really good advisor is going to say, hey, listen, um, you told me that you want to invest 500 a month, but you've got 10 grand in credit card debt. Let's pay that down first. And then we can talk about what is the appropriate amount to save. Let's make sure you've got the right life insurance, disability insurance, your emergency fund is topped up. You've got an education savings plan. Let's take a look at your wills, powers of attorney, et cetera. So across a number of different wealth factors, they might increase your, your scores along those factors uh, a certain point. And so maybe their overall point change, let's say for argument's sake is, I don't know, 20 points. They go from a 50 to a 70. That same type of person goes to, let's say, a robo-advisor, and all that robo-advisor does is say, okay, you want to give me $500 a month? Great. Let's put it into this portfolio. And that's it, right? All they're doing really is, is asset allocation and, and execution. And so all those other factors of wealth, the point change might be zero because the first generation of robo-advisors don't do anything other than asset allocation and execution. And so the overall point change might be, I don't know, five points, seven points. And so when people say now, okay, well, a full service advisor is twice the cost as a robo-advisor, that's all they look at now because the only thing they have as a point of reference is cost and they have no framework for value. So once you do establish a framework for value, you might be able to say, oh, okay, well, I got four times as much value in terms of point change versus the channel that was half expensive. So the calculus changes. And so at the end of the day, what this is really doing is trying to create a framework for measuring values so that people can look at not only cost, but also what they get in terms of value, which helps them make better choices, no matter what channel they end up going to. Now, so to summarize, I mean, the, the yeah, so the first thing is, is the importance of, of dealing with also someone who has designations as well, not just a regular, you know, financial advisor, because, you know, these people go to school and it's the same as a lawyer or an accountant or whatever, like that, the, you know, the schooling does count because you, you know, you touched on a couple of things is, is the holistic advice, right? Otherwise, if you're just going to be doing it, just deal with a robo advisor, right? Um, but uh, the other thing is, is, this is more of a little uh, shot to the importance of disability insurance, eh, Trevor Lindy? Uh, and, uh, and, and also the- disabled, oh, Trevor? Like, well, no, he just froze. Clearly. Oh, there he is. Internet keeps uh, freezing. Clearly. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, then also so on top of that, you know, ensuring that that financial plan is, you know, because you are worth more, you know, in your earlier in your career, you are worth more dead than alive because of the, the, the time value of money and the insurance that's needed or the critical illness or, or the disability and the financial planning because of your, your future income needs. Is that, is that correct? Well, you're, that worth, you're worth more debt if you have the insurance. Correct. <laughs> if you don't, correct. Then, yes. uh, then, then not. Uh, I think the point is that the value that has not yet materialized in terms of your balance sheet is Correct. converting that future as of yet earned income into assets. Um, so there's a lot of potential the younger that you are. And, and you know, your trajectory in life, this is when it's, it's very malleable. Getting, making those right choices early on can have a big impact because of the time value of money. So on uh, and, that... From my not, perspective, from, from my perspective, Curry, the big value, you know, and to Preet's point is just the ability the advisor's ability to to kind of dissect their client right and and give them advice in terms of you know what at 25 
um, disability is a fantastic idea, right? This is something that you should be put storing your nuts into at this point in time. At 60, well, you know what? Let's take those nuts away and put them somewhere else, right? Like, right. You know, and I mean, it, it, you know, to me, that that is invaluable, right? To, for somebody who doesn't have the time to otherwise go and, you know, try and even attempt to do uh, what I would say a feeble amount of research to, to get a, you know, what somebody like a, a professional advisor would be able to answer in relative short order. And, and on that, uh, Preet, I mean, the, the self-investing apps, like the Robin Hoods of the world, just to listen to name the one, the robos the South, you know, like people, I mean, the, the amount of times I, I hear, well, it's free. It's free. I don't have to pay anybody. It's free. Um, listen, I'm, I'm done talking about how, you know, this is a, how, how Robin Hood gets paid. Uh, you did a great episode on it, uh, on how they, on how they uh, get paid. Go. Because I'm done talking. I don't know. People aren't listening to me in some cases. And, okay, you, how, how they Doesn't get paid. Doesn't Robin Hood uh, steal from the rich to give to the poor? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But it's, it's actually, I think in, in terms of Robin Hood, I think some people would argue that it's kind of the reverse in how their business model operates in that they, they scalp from the lower income and give to the already wealthy <laughs> because yeah, uh, for people reverse. who don't know, um, uh, a lot of their revenue comes from what's calling selling payment, uh, getting payments for order flow. So mm -hmm. when you try to route an order, normally it would go right to the exchange in the old days. Um, but what they do is they end up selling those orders to go to market makers to execute those trades. Um, and they basically take a cut of the spread between the bid and the ask. And they and they are, they do this on such a high frequency basis and such a high volume basis that people don't really notice it. Uh, but it ends up you know generating billions and billions in revenue. And that comes from getting a cut of that, that bid ask spread. So when it comes to execution of orders, um, the consumer is ending up paying for that, even though for them, the execution might look to be free. It's coming out of the bid ask spread. But to your point, Brandon, in terms of, you know, what these apps do, there's been a lot of people who say, you know, this, this innovation uh, of technology in uh, trade execution is, is amazing, right? Now the costs of trading are, are zero in some cases. Well, uh, that's separate from what's in the best interests of investors. And many academic studies have shown time and time again, one of the most famous uh, studies, I think, when it comes to trade execution is uh, Barber and Odin 2000 or 2001. And it was called Trading May Be Hazardous to Your Wealth, which was a play on smoking may be hazardous to your health. And what they found was when they divided up um, uh, a sample of people who were trading stocks, they found that the more people traded, the more frequently they turned over their portfolio, the lower their performance was. Uh, so the more, it, it's kind of like that analogy that, you know, your portfolio is like a bar of soap. The more you touch it, the smaller it gets. That's what they found, you know, and they divided people, I think, into deciles and that, and the, by frequency of trading activity and the top decile, I think, had an underperformance at the time of like, it was almost 10% annualized, annualized, um, and this was a this was a strong period of market performance where the market was up like 17 or 20% or something like that. But in any case, the more you traded, the worse you did. And what's one thing you can do to encourage people to trade more? 
make it less expensive to trade. And if you want to go even further, make it free to trade. And so there's effectively no barrier to trading. So people trade way more than they would have otherwise. And so you could argue that removing all commissions is actually reducing the performance. Yes, they pay less in commissions, but they suffer in terms of higher underperformance if they are trading more often. And so that has not necessarily been a great innovation from the perspective of you know, the money-weighted return of the investor. Hmm. Now, can you, okay, I want to Google that, actually. I, I didn't know that study. What was the Barber 2001? What was it? Sorry? It was either 2000 or 2001. It was Barber and Odin, and it was called Trading Maybe Hazardous to Your Wealth. Hmm. Or very similar to that. Very, very similar to that. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to definitely look that up. Trading Maybe Hazardous to Your Health. Or wealth, sorry. Yeah. Now, um, can we touch on this? Will this will piggyback into the crypto piece? So, um, you know, Warren Buffett, ninety-one years old. His business partner Charlie Munger, ninety-seven years old. Obviously, you and I um, both uh, revel in in what those two have done in the past fifty years. As a matter of fact, I just 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 to geek out, I I, I basically. <laughs> you know, compared, um, I did, I'm, I, I, you know, I compared, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I compared hit Berkshire Hathaway Hathaway's holdings, which is usually a 90, 10 between equity and fixed income to a 100% us equity portfolio going all the way back to the late seventies. And the, he literally is off you gotta remember if he's using 10% fixed income to our listeners that he's using 10% less gas on the fire than a, uh, an ETF, it's essentially a, a, a U.S. equity, 100% ETF portfolio, which is all stocks. He is only off by in a 50 year return around 20 to 30 basis points. Yet these, the amount of times I heard in the last, especially two years on how famously Charlie can't stand cryptocurrency. Uh, uh, Warren Buffett said, if I had the money, which is ironic when he says that, um, I would short all cryptocurrencies. And this is back when they were flying high. And the amount of people that would say, oh, they're in their 90s. What do they know? They need to get off this train. They don't know what the heck they're doing. Ba, 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 all this going on. So it's a, it's a couple parts of a question that I want to kind of get your opinion on. One, what other industry where you've been in you've been in the industry for 50 60 70 years with a track record where you are not only one of the best you are the richest person in the world that it doesn't happen with doctors it doesn't happen with dentists it doesn't happen with lawyers it doesn't happen with accountants it doesn't happen with you know real estate no one ever says that about any other profession where they're too old they don't know what they're doing is as a matter of fact they get become reveled and revered in their industries because they've been in it so long. Yet in our industry, oh, we're, we've lost touch. So if you want to touch on that a bit, it just drives me bonkers. Yeah, I think, you know, people are always looking for the next big thing because part of Wall Street investing the industry is this romanticization of how you can create extreme wealth. And we celebrate these stories of, you know, how someone took an idea and with a lot of uh, 
gumption and uh, perseverance turned it into, you know, a billion dollar industry or whatever. And so we, we celebrate, you know, entrepreneurs and some people say, well, this is, you know, this is, this is entrepreneurship, the whole crypto space. And so they may say, yeah, you know, you don't get it because um, a lot of the people who end up changing the world or innovating and advancing civilization, society in some way, shape or form, were always called, you know, crazy at the beginning. And so part of it is separating those sort of narrative stories from fundamentals. And that I think is what has really defined Buffett and Munger and Berkshire Hathaway is that they get down to fundamentals and they have a very particular investment philosophy that is simple to explain, very hard to execute for people. And I think that speaks to the emotional component of, of, of investing in general. You know, their process is, is almost, I guess it is hardwired into their, into their psyches that they have an idea as to what and how you value a company. And they have this idea of what that intrinsic value is of a company. And when they see prices are trading below that, they see that as a mispricing and they see it as a value play. And they say, you know, if I'm willing to hold in this business for 30, 40, 50 years or indefinitely, and it's being, you know, traded at a discount to what we think is its intrinsic value, we're going to buy it. And so that revolves around having a very good level of confidence in what you think that asset, that company is ultimately worth. And this is long very term. different. Long yeah. term, right? Yeah, long term. I mean, you know, there's a lot of great anecdotes you can get out of his annual letters to shareholders, but things like, you know, if you gave an investor a punch card and it only had 20 slots, which represents all the transactions you can make in a life, um, you would take each investing decision a lot more seriously. Uh, you know, if the stock market mm -hmm. turned off for 10 years, we wouldn't care because we own <laughs> wonderful businesses. Um, and if I'm willing to buy 1% of the company, it means I'm willing to buy 100% of the company. And I'd be happy to do that if I believe in the company and its management and what have you. It's got a big economic moat, whatever. They've got this whole philosophy. Yeah. And it all centers around value. And we have no measure of what the actual value of any cryptocurrency is. So for them, they just don't, they just don't see it. And um, that's why they will sort of, you know, take this very strong stance on, on cryptocurrency and why they're so negative on it is because no one has actually developed any good measure of what is, what are, what are, what is a coin worth? What is Bitcoin? Yeah. What should it be worth? Some and form if, of regulation, right? Well, you know, if no one knows what that value should be, then how do you know if it's discounted to that value? How do you know if it's a buying opportunity or a selling opportunity? Yeah. You, you don't. There's no... There's no consensus on how to value these things. So for them, it's like it's pure speculation. And that is what we've seen is all these stories about anything to do with, you know, the crypto space, decentralized finance, DAOs, NFTs, Web3. It's all this hype about, well, this is what it could do. This is what it could do. Well, do it. And mm. that hasn't been done. It's like a so, junior mining stock, eh? Yeah, there's a huge speculation component, right? And so the trade-off is, you know, if you're if you take the tack that listen, this is a speculation, which is really the same as a gamble, it could pay off if it hits big. There's a lot of ifs in that though. And there's also a possibility that it could completely fail. You may not find anything using your junior <laughs> mining right. company example. And if so, you lose all your money. And so is that a rational way to invest your hard-earned money? Uh, or at least all of it? 
Um, and so, you know, it's really separating the difference between speculation and investment. Now, the one thing that just, I guess, really kind of, I don't know how else to say it, but like grinds my gears, I guess, even though every single time we go back in history, every single point, we, we can go to the tech, the tech bubble. Yes, technology is still around. Um, we can go back to the tulip crisis of 1634, right? That's been quoted a bunch of times. Anytime something has produced a result without any intrinsic value, without any, without producing anything, that thing has crashed until re either regulations come in or it's just standardized, you know, tulips and, and tech being that one example. Um, yet you, you point to these situations and, and history, like Mark Twain famously said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. And how is it that people just don't grasp? Is it just the emotional piece that people just don't want to believe it or they just want someone to give them their confirmation bias? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's the emotional pull can sometimes cloud us. And, um, you know, if you take a look at the the tech bubble, looking at it in hindsight, it was clear, right? It was clear that those valuations made no sense whatsoever. But at the time, there are a lot of people who really believed that, you know, um, companies were effectively valued at, you know, $10 million per employee, which is completely detached from any sort of, you know, valuation metric that makes any kind of sense. When, when, when you see these, these measures of value that are so stretched compared to the long-term norms, you'll have some people say, oh, it looks pricey or what have you. Um, but at the time, it's amazing how we can convince ourselves into thinking, well, maybe this time is different. Maybe this will change the world. Because if it does, I could get rich. And it's a very seductive line of thinking that I think historically a lot of people fall into. And again, it's only in, in hindsight, in retrospect, that you also start to see just how foolish some of those things sound. And, and so what that really tells me that it's much harder to separate the emotional and psychological aspects from, you know, like pure valuation methods or being more quote unquote rational when it comes to evaluating the value of assets. Now, when we get on to our next topic, I, I, you know, I saw you speak and you were talking about your doctorate that I believe it was in Stony Creek, if my this is pre-pandemic, and I think was it CI that you spoke at? Was it uh, or Fidelity? I couldn't remember, but could have been either. I, I don't know. Yeah, but I, I've seen you. <laughs> I've seen you speak a couple times. Um, now, for full disclosure, to anyone that's listening, I can't sell individual crypto. I have no direct exposure to crypto. Um, this is personal opinion. Um, you know, please seek professional advice. Uh, would love to give you that professional advice, but nonetheless, please, please do so. Um, now the exposures that I do have, uh, would be indirect exposures. Like for example, if I have exposure to Tesla, Tesla has, you know, accepted in some capacity cryptocurrency. So that'd be my indirect exposure or, or I do own a local artist in Niagara. He released some NFTs. Uh, I, I have indirect exposure through that. Um, but I need to give that uh, th that out there because my license and designations are worth way more to me than anything else. 
Um, you've done some, you did a great, uh, again, YouTube piece on crypto. Um, and this was, I, you know, you did this, I think six weeks ago, eight weeks ago. You, I, I can't remember, but that, at least that's when I digested the content. Oh, th oh you're and talking was, about the crypto FOMO one? Yes. Yes. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. That was in January. Um, and, oh, wow. Okay. Well then I digested about eight weeks ago, just trying to crush some content. Um, when the world opened up, I had very little time. Um, but you, uh, great. I strongly advise some people to watch that. Um, okay. Let's talk crypto. Uh, let's talk, um, your opinion on it. Uh, you had some pretty good, even the trading fees, the selling fees, the buying fees, it ends up being astronomical. So let's educate our clients on again, what, like, what's your opinion on that? Let's go with that first. Well, I Listen, think my not clients yet. Yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think most people, um, are attracted to cryptocurrencies because other people have been talking about it for a long time. Um, and this is how a lot of people get interested in, in you know, certain high-flying investments. And when you've seen the returns that have been exhibited in the past, everyone starts to think, well, if I had only put in, you know, 1,000, 10,000 or whatever. And I forget the exact numbers uh, from that video because I did create a long time ago, but the first sort of real world transaction where someone paid for something in Bitcoin was known as Bitcoin Pizza Day. And someone mm -hmm. paid for two, I think it was Papa John pizzas for yep. 30,000 Bitcoin or something like that at the time. Because each Bitcoin was worth like a fraction of a penny or something like that. And and so people always say, well, if you convert that to what Bitcoin was worth at the time, you know, those two pizzas cost, you know, $400 million or something like <laughs> that. And when you hear stories like that, you're thinking, oh, wow, if only I'd gotten in. Uh, the first thing I'll tell you is anyone who got in, you know, when Bitcoin was, you know, 100 bucks, a buck or whatever it was per coin, no one would have held on that long to see those gains, right? Think about just a thought experiment. Imagine you put a uh, thousand bucks, 10,000 bucks into some kind of speculative investment that you really didn't know if it was going to go anywhere or not. Remember, th this is the early days of Bitcoin where people really didn't know what was going to happen at all or what it was, how it was built, the tech, nothing. Like people knew nothing about it. And say your $10,000 turned into $20,000. A lot of people say, you know what, I'm going to take out at least my original 10,000 bucks. <laughs> so maybe they right. leave now the free money to ride. Now, let's say that $10,000, let's say that doubles. You're going to take out a little bit more. But what if you didn't and went to 100000 What if it 10x Then a lot of people are like, all right, well, you know what? This was crazy to begin with. It's worth 10 times what I put in. I'm going to take it all out. And so if you think that putting in that initial 10000 you would end up with like $2 billion if you had just held on, you would not have held on. No one would have held on. So those those examples of look how much money you could have made if you were got in early on Bitcoin is absolute BS because nobody nobody, unless they forgot that they owned those coins in a computer that's in a landfill somewhere, which, you know, does happen from time to time, um, <laughs> no one would have held on. Um, so that's, that's, you know, one aspect of it. The other aspect is, you know, when people, I, I remember this very clearly, this was pre-pandemic, it was a Christmas party, I was out in BC visiting my parents, and um, we're at a, a dinner party and a bunch of their friends individually came up to me and they're all asking because they knew me as sort of like the money guy. They're like, I'm thinking about buying Bitcoin. I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> the very <laughs> next question, the very next question is, what is it? 
I'm yes. Like, this is the worst way possible to consider an investment is huh. I'm thinking about buying something. I have no idea what it is, but I'm willing to put in, you know, 10, 20,000. That's, that's ridiculous. And what this tells you is that this is really being driven by the returns, the performance that has n- nothing to do with people's understanding of it. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of people who work in crypto who clearly understand some of these fundamentals, but I forget who it was, but they described sort of the cryptocurrency world as everything you don't know about economics combined with everything you don't know about computer science, something like that. And these are two very <laughs> difficult, you know, topics to wrap your head around individually, sure. but then trying to do trying to have expertise in both, you know, it's a pretty rare combination. And so sometimes you'll find that there are people who are more technically proficient who don't understand the economics. And sometimes you'll find there are people who uh, understand the economics and don't understand the technology side of things. And therefore, there's a lot of creation uh, or sorry, confusion, uh, misinformation, and there's a lot of grift because whatever, whenever there is something that is confusing and has high possible returns, you know, there's people out there who are just aching to make money off of it, no matter how it pans out. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of that. Yeah, it is absolutely insane on... Uh, the amount of people that like, uh, obviously I err on the side of don't know how a hammer works, don't know how a computer works, but I understand the economics of it. Right. I mean, that's just in what we do. And I've, I can't even tell you how many conversations I've had with, with, with clients and with friends and like, well, then what's the intrinsic value of it? And then they look at me and go, what does that mean? And I'm like, if you can't even explain what intrinsic value means, then why are you investing in something? Yeah. Um, and it, it just is, it's crazy. At least, you know, like we always had a debate. I mean, this is before Elon and which was again, another episode you did, which was Elon purchasing Twitter and explaining on how that all worked. That was actually a quite funny, uh, uh, episode. Thanks. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I laughed. It was good. Um, you know, and you could sit there and we were just under, we just couldn't understand the valuation of Tesla at the time. We're going back, let's say eight weeks, you know, when we're, it was over a thousand dollars a share, but you know, people would say, well, yeah, you know, they'd rebut and say, well, I don't agree that Tesla's a thousand dollars a share. I said, but then I turned around. I'm like, yeah, but he releases S he by law has to release audited financial statements that I, as an investor or as a broker or whomever, have access to and can analyze and read through. And then after reading through those documents, I can then come to the determination of whether I agree or disagree that the intrinsic value within those documents justifies the the share price. Bitcoin doesn't have any of that. Cryptocurrency, so I should say, has none of that. And I think that's just so scary. I mean, I was down at a um, a client's place. Won't say where specifically, but just, and, you know, these clients are in their 60s, you know, modest, uh, you know, cute little home, nothing too crazy, but still working in their 60s. We'll probably have to work a little bit longer. And after the conversation, they were coming into some money, but like nothing, like I'm talking $10,000, $20,000, which was a lot to them but uh, nothing on the grand scheme of things. And he literally deadpanned to me and said, and I quote, I'm thinking of getting into crypto, uh, specifically the Don Cherry cryptocurrency. And I mean, I couldn't tell them. 
like no, don't walk run now this is before this is before, before the whole poppy situation and <laughs> right. before right uh so these people and you, those people yeah, whatever the hell. yeah yeah that piece we'll, we'll, we won't get into that but nonetheless it was just insane that after reviewing his financial plan and and he literally just said what are your thoughts now i never did see that money for myself to kind of manage or whatever i don't know what they've done with it and you know it, it is what it is but i i just couldn't i couldn't believe that these people that that 20 grand was going to be a lot to them. It's a lot to me for crying out loud. I don't think anyone on this call would turn down $20,000. Um, but the fact that they oh, would want to put it on black, essentially on the casino and just hope and pray that it doubles. Um, it, like, I guess in your mind, especially surrounding the new, uh, I wanted to touch on the title protection act in Ontario, 2019, um, if you want, if we can kind of segue into that and, and dealing with, um, I guess how you wanted to wrap up the crypto piece and, and what your, what your opinion is on that. Boy, I don't know if we can wrap that up in only a few minutes. There's so much to cover about, uh, uh, crypto, but I think that, um, the next phase of crypto is going to be people realizing because it is becoming, it's not mainstream yet but it's creeping towards that. But now more and more people have gotten hurt by the last uh, crypto crash. Yes. Um, and this is where more and more people are going to be turning to say, okay, so who do I go to now when I've got a complaint and there's no one to go to? There is no one to go to hmm. right now who has any power to do anything. And so this kind of shoots a big hole in one of the big promises that you know cryptocurrency enthusiasts uh, have been espousing, which is there's no oversight, right? It's decentralized. Um, no one can sort of see what's happening. Well, there, well, there's also no one there to have your back. And mm -hmm. this is where I think we're going to see a bigger push towards regulation. And the critical thing is, what is that regulation going to look at? We've already seen there's been some proposals in the US about how to regulate cryptocurrencies that's coming from a different body than the SEC. And the chair of the SEC, I believe, just a few days ago came out and said, hey, hold on now. You know, some of what you're proposing is actually going to cause some bigger issues um, if you go about it the way that you're thinking. It's such a complex area that the regulatory landscape, which is, I think, this one of the few predictions I'll make about anything, regulation, more regulation is coming in this space. And it's going to be tough to get it right because it is such a complex field. So I'll just leave it off and say that right now, there's very little oversight, uh, recourse or restitution available to people. And this is going to be a big factor in the next phase of where cryptocurrency and anything in that space, where, where that goes next. Um, I, I could not agree with you more uh, on that. And I, I, you know, the irony of, of that, of, of the statements of people, you know, they turn to me and they say, oh, we should have more, more um, regulation. And then I turn around, wasn't that the whole point of crypto is to deregulate the financial industry, you know, de, you know, deregulation. And that's where money went to hide. I mean, if you were, uh, you know, again, I mean, if you're a resident or uh, a citizen of El Salvador right now. I mean, you've lost your shirt. That company 
that that country took their entire um, currency and can used it at, and use Bitcoin as its as, as its official currency. And I mean, I I feel for those types of people because they under no circumstance uh, chose that that destination for them. Um, now, Trev, you and I were talking uh, earlier about the what we thought was going to be the uh, three quarters of a basis point, uh, three quarters of a, a basis point, a percentage point, 75 basis point increase. I know you had a couple of questions regarding that for Preet and his idea. Now, Preet, we're, we're on your schedule. We can, um, we can go past uh, our, our, there's no deadline now. We can keep going. So uh, you let us know when you have a hard stop and what your schedule is like, but Trev, go ahead. You can kind of talk on, you know, <laughs> You, I'm just gonna say, I, I wish I had. I, I honestly, I can't even remember. I made, I didn't make notes on it when we were having that chat about it earlier. Refresh so my memory. Hard stop, Preet. Before we, uh, we got kind of. Yeah, actually, game. that's really good. Uh, I can go to three fifteen. Okay, great, perfect. So, just regarding, like, wh- I guess, y- when is this gonna stop, Preet? <laughs> you know, when is this? What is your opinion initially on? Did you think that the central bank took too long to start doing these? Like, do, like, uh, do you think there's a world of pain coming for people that are? I mean, Trevor's got the Trev. What is the five-year fixed break rate uh, typically? Uh, sorry, Let's right see. now the Scotia Bank went up to five forty-four last night as of eleven eleven fifty-nine p.m. into this morning. They're five. And the average five-year mortgage breaks five at year, how many months? Thirty-three. Oh, months? breaking. Yeah, thirty-three months. 70% of okay. Canadians are breaking at the 33-month mark. So, Preet, go ahead. What is your thought? And, Trev, you can have that uh, uh, prompt discussion. Uh, my thoughts in terms of the central bank reaction and, and sort of yeah. policy Recession, in the last that kind of stuff. Yeah. So there's, uh, I guess, if we go back a little bit um, to the 30,000-foot perspective, um, there are basically two camps. There is team transitory and team structural in terms of, you know, where is inflation um, going? How long is it going to be here? And the early talk was, of course, I think famous now that it was transitory, right? That thought, you know, inflation is going to run hot for a little bit, but um, it's going to come back down. And a lot of that was predicated, I think, on uh, supply chain issues. Because, if we go back to March 2020, this set off a cascade of events. Um, the, I mean, the world ground to a halt. And so supply chains uh, basically had this this big pause put on place. And it's taken a long time for that to sort of matriculate throughout the system. And it's basically turned into a lack of supply. Um all these just-in-time manufacturing processes, which were the you know pinnacle of efficiency, fell apart when you know the parts that they needed to assemble things didn't arrive just in time because they weren't available. So we saw a lot of increase in prices across the board for a lot of things. As supply chains start to open up, you know, team transitory, you know, they've got egg on their face, and they've kind of lost a lot of credibility. You know, Janet Yellen came out and said uh, just recently, "Yeah, we got it wrong." Um, and so they've got a bit of a credibility problem and the market expectation is, yeah, you got to increase rates a little bit to keep inflation under control. That's historically how things work. And in the back of their mind, I think they still think, well, it really is still more of a supply chain issue. Um, 
And then we had the invasion in Ukraine, which you know has impacted uh, energy markets, has impacted uh, some basic commodity markets, food markets, etc. And so, you know, it's easy again to look back in hindsight and say, you know, the Fed should have raised more aggressively. But I think you could also say, you know, the Fed could have raised uh, before inflation even started to to start to creep up once they realized the reaction to, you know, the March 2020, the first year of the pandemic, things were going okay. We didn't see huge, you know, drop off in in people spending money. We saw people building up savings in in that first summer, if you remember that. I think the Bank of Canada came out and said the average household is now sitting on, you know, an, an additional average $6,000 because they couldn't spend money on travel. And so they've been spending it on other things. So it's possible that they should have started raising rates before, um, you know, even the talk of the recent increase in inflation started. It now seems, you know, with today's 75 basis point increase and some people saying, you know, they almost got to 100 basis points because now the Fed needs to rebuild a bit of their credibility and, you know, act swiftly and decisively by getting ahead of, um, you know, this rate of inflation. And so uh, I think, you know, markets are pricing in that we're going to see a series of, you know, double hikes going forward, um, which means for households which have gotten used to cheap debt um, and, you know, are maybe stretched, if you combine the severe increase in the price of, you know, getting places with fuel, uh, cost of heating homes, cooling homes, energy, the grocery stores, plus now interest on all their variable rate debt at the very least is going up and fixed rates when people renew into them, can be so much higher. Boy, that's going to be a very tricky situation to manage, uh, to say the least. So, yeah, I think, you know, a bit of pessimism. Um, and, uh, this, I think the thing that stands out to me about this is that we've got an entire generation of consumers never seen any type of recession, true bear market downturn. Um, and it's unfortunately a lot of people at the margins are going to get really hurt by this. Hmm. No, I, I, I totally agree. Trev, do you want to maybe, uh, chime in here on, on that and what you're seeing and, and uh, yeah, even the mortgage well, stress test piece. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like one of the things that that Curry and I were talking about earlier today is just around um, bond yields where they were. Um, the the current level that they're at. The last time we saw them at this level, we were sitting in uh, January two thousand. Right. So lots of, uh, you know, some comments that we were making is obviously at that time in the mortgage business, there was no mortgage stress test. Uh, OSFI realistically isn't going to be doing anything until December. Um, but, you know, you've got a lot of people kind of in that holding pattern, essentially, right, where they don't have much choice. We, we're, you know, we're qualifying that Scotia rate that I used as an example is 7.44% that we've got to use now. And it's, it's kind of scary that the, because of the rising rates and the way we qualify consumers, they are actually qualifying for more of a mortgage by taking a variable rate than if they opt to take a fixed rate. And that's a pretty dangerous position to be putting people in just so that they can get themselves into the market. So more a thought than than a question, but that's really what I'm seeing from this side of the business. And um, yeah. Trevor, a question for you because this is more your expertise. Um, 
when it comes to uh, variable rate mortgages and the split between you know adjustable rate and variable rate, what is the split like for and and for listeners? What I'm asking is, you know, when there's a change to the overnight rate, um, some variable rate mortgages you'll see your payments adjust, and others you'll see your amortization increase. What is the split uh, for people? Do you do you have a rough idea? I uh, no, I can't really put a percentage on it because they're. A lot of people will say that it's the banks that provide true variable rate mortgages and it's the monoline lenders and, and credit unions that are providing the adjustable rate products. However, they're really, to, to say all of the banks provide a true variable rate mortgage is actually an inaccurate statement. Um, most of them are, are I, I guess I could say 50-50 are, are adjustable versus variable. So if we were to actually look statistically, I would say we'd probably be more, again, I'm throwing a number out there just based on knowing where my volumes are and what I do and, and, you know, knowing colleagues within the brokerage pre-increase at least 70% probably sit in the adjustable rate market, which meaning the payment is non-static. The payment fluctuates as variable moves. Uh, and then probably 30% that are in that static payment situation where it affects the amortization on the tail end. Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm, they I'm just, go ahead, Josh, go ahead, Bondo. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm switching gears. So, if you're on topic. Well, I was just, no, I was just basically going to say, like, I, I know a lot of people use their home equity line of credits in order to get through the last, you know, two years. And a lot of consumer debt is on those home equity line of credits. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, Trevor had a uh, great quote earlier today. And, you know, yes, default rates in Canada are less than 1%. And as a matter of fact, probably less than 10% of 1% historically. But Trev nailed it when he said, you know, just because Canadians haven't in the past walked away from their homes or their mortgages doesn't mean that they won't do that in the future. Um, do you have any comment or any, in, you know, insight onto that on what you think um, the status is? In, 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 I think I mean, they you're did in, in the 80s, right? Yeah, like, you know, you're you're in downtown you're in, are you in toronto right now or right now uh, yeah G, gta so like i mean pricing debt in, in with those homes are coming down uh collins was uh, basically saying that earlier on um like what are your thoughts on that like are, are you thinking that people are still going to be able to afford it or or what are your thoughts so do you think that monetary policy is going to have to do a change well, I guess that's a million dollar question. Mm. Um, I, I, my crystal ball is always fuzzy. I always say that there are two types of forecasters, those who don't know and those who don't know that they don't know. Um, <laughs> and, and, and the flip side of that is I think people are very adaptable. Um, and so if situations and circumstances changes, people, you'll see what they end up doing based on their priorities. So I think a lot of people will end up cutting back on, uh, you know, life uh, and enjoying life to be able to make those payments. Uh, mm. Because I think it's kind of been burned into our into our minds, you know, home ownership and not missing mortgage payments. It's like one of the last payments you miss if you can, right? Um, and so I think that's going to have the effect of stretching some people and they'll be able to maintain their payments, um, but they'll have to make uh, sacrifices in other areas. 
And there will be some people who will have to make some tough choices. Um, I mean, if you take a look at the tech sector, we're, we're just starting to see some waves of layoffs. Um, you know, certainly starting in the crypto space, but we're starting to see it sort of trickle through to some other in the high tech space. And when you lose your job, I mean, that's when um, it may be a recession if, what's the saying? It's a recession if people around you are losing jobs. It's a depression if you lose your job. Right. Um, and that's when you'll start to see people making uh, hard choices. Um, there was a survey that came out. It said something like one in four people would have mm-hmm. to sell their homes in the face of rising interest rates. I don't, I don't see that. I mean, that I'd like to know more about the exact wording of that question. That doesn't strike me as um, plausible, uh, unless you know they said interest rates rose by a certain percentage, but one in four homeowners, that doesn't sound right. So they're pretty stretched right now though. Pretty right. Like I, you see a lot of, and Trevor can speak to it too, because he's got to qualify these people. We deal with them on the back end. You're seeing so many times a parent come on, right? And I mean, uh, at the end of the day, the parents just on really to help them qualify, right? Mm-hmm. They don't want to dig into their pockets. And, you know, we put bare trust agreements behind the scenes saying, you know what? The parent doesn't really own the house. They're just there to help them qualify, right? So, uh, I mean, but what would what would happen? Let's say we do have you know um, a significant enough increase that there are enough people who start to default, um, and um, there must be some kind of restructuring uh, option. You know, it might be painful, but you know, if you are a lender and you have a lot of people who are uh, you know at risk, I'm sure part of your business calculus would be okay. Well. Let's allow them to restructure. Maybe the penalties or the fees for restructuring will, you know, cut them a bit of a break because we're going to end up making more interest in the long run, anyways. There's got to be some kind of mechanism. I don't. I don't think people are just going to sit by and watch people default and and bail in their homes because, on mass, because if that happened and you had this big selling pressure, keep in mind the percentage of people. Uh, working in real estate related industries now is I think something like three or four standard deviations away from the long-term norm because the housing market has been so strong for so long. It's attracted people in. So that's a sort of like a rational response to that, go where the money is being made. But that also means that the economy is a little bit more vulnerable because if there is you know, some kind of significant destabilization in housing, then more people are affected, which then becomes this positive feedback cycle. All those people working in those industries make less money. They're able to make less payments towards whatever they spend money on and so on and so forth. So I imagine policymakers, industry, you know, if push comes to shove, and we've seen this happen before in crises, they'll come together and figure out some kind of solution. So there is that sort of, you know, adaptability variable to always think about. You don't want to rely on, you don't just assume that, you know, people are going to get bailed out and industry is going to get bailed out. But I think that is always something in the back of people's minds that, you know, if things got really, really, really bad, people are willing to change, I would say the rules, but they're willing to make sort of extraordinary, take extraordinary measures. Yeah. And I mean, even if you look at a lot of times when you're, somebody's going through an unfortunate situation and it's a bankruptcy or some form of insolvency or they're, they're going into some form of credit or protection. A lot of times, one of the last assets that they're going to lose is going to be their house, right? Because they preserve mm-hmm. that payment and they stay in good stand. Yeah. It's their largest asset a lot of times, right? Yeah. It, it's, um, it's, it's scary right now. That's for sure. I mean, it's definitely going to be, uh, you know, I know a lot of people that are, 
you know, they, they put a lot of those trips and those, you know, a lot of, how can I put this? Yeah. A, a consumer debt, basically consumption debt on their home equity line of credits because it was so cheap. I mean, we had back in season one, the amount of people, his name was Alex Genis. He was the owner of uh, Henley Honda and Subaru, uh, Subaru of Niagara down here. I mean, subsequently he's, he sold his, those dealerships, but at the time um, he basically uh, was saying he, he could not, he could not count, count how many people walked away from a fixed loan uh, from the dealership at like 0%, zero percent, zero, zero, you know, or maybe one and a half percent, whatever, and put it right on their line of credit. And, and because they only had to make interest only payments and it, he goes, boys, do you remember that? It was, it was a, uh, he was very passionate about it. Cause he's right. A structured loan. Yeah. You, you pay it off by, you know, five years, six years, seven years. And I believe at zero percent, at yeah, zero percent, right? Like and that's Preet, the- I, if I'm not mistaken, you did something on the seven or eight year, uh, uh, you did a video on that as well. Um, that being, yeah, I did. Um, yeah, very quickly, it was uh, looking at zero percent, um, vehicle loans, um, and whether or not they're actually zero percent. Because sometimes, what can be the case is, you know, if you go to a dealership and they say, hey, this car is 30 grand or whatever, and um, if you're getting a loan, they'll say, oh, well, we can give you a zero percent loan. Um, or if you're gonna, you know, pay cash, uh, we can give you a cash discount, which means the true price is the cash discount price, and yeah, so it's built it's in zero eh? percent of a higher principal value, which is kind of an artificial <laughs> principal value. So it's not really a zero percent cost of borrowing in the grand scheme of things. Creative right. accounting. Yeah, it was. It was a great. It was also a great little video too. Uh, also, there was a good one on should I buy or should I rent. That was another good one. Um, anyway, uh, in the I got a couple the, questions for Preet. There, uh, we kind of sidetracked it there. So just because I want to address your question on the line there, Brett. Uh, Brent. Yep. Uh, go ahead. Know, any interesting results, uh, Preet? Uh, obviously, you're not. I don't expect you to to spill the beans on your UK study, right? But uh, I don't think you've you know gone to to print yet or anything, right? Uh, no, but, I haven't uh, defended it yet. I have some early sort of thoughts that I think that are emerging out of the data. The biggest one is um, there's probably more of an in, um, endogenous factor that explains how well people end up doing. And what I mean by that is it's clear that you know people with higher income, higher levels of wealth uh, before selecting their primary channel of advice there's probably something about those people that is largely explaining why they end up doing so well. And so in many cases, they go to a channel of advice, advisor or not, because they've determined that they need help with something. Um, there are certainly situations, one of the things we asked about was, you know, who solicited who in the formation of that relationship? Was it, you know, someone convinced you to work with them or did you decide that you needed help and you sought advice? Um, So we try to tease out who is responsible for making ultimate decisions. Another variable we looked at is who is responsible for actually implementing the things that you did. For example, did you decide that you wanted to save uh, a certain amount of money per month and you just needed someone to facilitate that? Or did someone say, you want to save 200 a month, you need to save 1000 And they actually got you to save that extra $800. Um, and so what seems to be the case is that there's probably more about the individual that explains how well they end up later in life 
than necessarily the channel that they go to. But um, the other main finding that looks to be emerging is that the one big differentiator between um, any advice provider is how much they focus on financial planning or being holistic as opposed to just looking at any one thing like just a portfolio or just insurance or whatever. Um, and so as a measure of someone's financial well-being, which is kind of like a more holistic way of looking at um, yep. what they're getting, um, those who are providing financial planning or financial planning related types of services is where the value seems to be. Yeah, I would imagine that that would extend to estate planning, right? Which, uh, yeah, I mean, it basically comes down to, um, you know, goal establishment, um, creating plans, monitoring, reviewing plans. It's really about the yep. process as opposed to hundred percent product. Yeah, the relationship and the you know the communication that's had between the advisor and the, the client, which is always key. Um, when did you fall in love with numbers? Eighty-seven was that the year? Why do you say that? I just noted uh, <laughs> on your bio there that you had uh, part of a championship winning team there, math team in 87. So. <laughs> yeah, it was a totally <laughs> unexpected win. Uh, we really thought, you know, we didn't place at all. They were right out third place, second place. And then we're just like, all right, where are the muffins? Let's just, you know, start eating or whatever. <laughs> and then they mentioned that our team won. We, we didn't believe it. So <laughs> maybe there was some miscounting involved, but um I, uh, I I like that numbers. would be funny at a math a challenge. Yeah, right. <laughs> I like numbers. I wouldn't consider myself to be you know like a mathlete really, um, but I like yeah. working with numbers and analyzing data. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I definitely like spreadsheets more than the average person. That's for sure. Oh, I'm with you. Oh my god, yeah, <laughs> love the Excel sheets. Yeah. Love them. I but wanted in to the time, tip my hat to you. I wanted to tip my hat to you too, just about the. Your honorary involvement in the Better Life Foundation, uh, you know, all of us oh, here yeah, are thank involved you. in uh, charitable organizations and, and helping, uh, you know, somewhat less fortunate. So it took my, we tip our hats to you. Yeah, it's a great organization. I'm not involved with them anymore, but um, they're based out in BC, but um, they had this great program where um, they provide meals for, um, you know, people who are, you know, on the margins of society and, you know, I just need that break. And think about any day you started out where you missed breakfast, you missed lunch. How productive are you that day, right? You can't, you're not performing at your best. And that's your status quo. Imagine how hard it is to break out of whatever situation you're in. So, so they do a lot of great work. Well, thank you. I've never seen a car go with no fuel, right? There you exactly. go. Exactly. <laughs> nice. Well, knowing that uh, you are, uh, we're pushing up against your time. I, we we want to say sincerely thank you very much. And when you do produce that paper um, uh, and you defend it, um, we would love to have you on again. Uh, you know, the power of Zoom is you can be anywhere in the world, and we'd love to have you on again to discuss it, even if um, you're in the UK. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. We're 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 good. We're good to working with you. We really appreciate your time, as we know you have a finite amount of it. Um, and uh, our uh, if you want, our we we do give our guests our sponsor, Brand Boulevard, uh, gives our guests a nice little uh, takeaway. So if you want to, yeah, that little mug, you get two of those. Ooh, so nice. It could be, it could be a his and her. <laughs> 
uh, just afterwards, you and I just like all of our wives. Yeah, that's right. After (laughs) afterwards, you and I uh, can connect and you can just tell me the post office box or wherever that they can send it to everybody. Um, uh, please go to preetbanerjee.com to find out more and to subscribe to his YouTube channel. I do. We all do. It's been amazing. He does great advice podcast and a podcast. Uh, sir, thank you. We thank really you, gentlemen. It's been a, it was very enlightening. Help us help it's you. been a pleasure. Go ahead, Bondo. Greatly appreciated. Help, help us help you stay informed. Help. Thanks, everybody. Did, Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Hey, 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 hey. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.